Hey, you're listening to the Mr. Bill podcast. Hey, you're listening to the Mr. Bill podcast. Hey, you are listening to the Mr. Bill podcast. Hey, you're 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 listening to the Mr. Bill podcast. All right, fuck yeah, let's do it. Ooh. All right, episode one of the Mr. Bill podcast. Yeah. Uh, I have Andrew Huang. So uh, excited to be here. Hell yeah. Yeah, so like I was saying, um, this podcast, it's like something that I don't want to like take over my life. It's something that I feel like I'm always just hanging out with people like you or people like, you know, Joel or something like that. And I figured if I just have microphones in my bag, um, this is actually the guy who's going to be editing this podcast. He pretty much was like, you should just carry microphones around and then just put them up like this and, and just talk and then you know you can do them anywhere and then just give me the audio and i'll edit it together and, and make you a podcast happen it's genius and it's like exactly the way that i know i wouldn't be able to do a podcast because it's yeah. so hard for me to not be like ah oh, i could make a theme song for it i could totally. like add their music in at you know specific moments to really tell a story yeah I just couldn't. Yeah, but the issue with that is like if you go into it like, all right, I'm going to make this like really heavily produced podcast, then that's just like 30 hours a week that you're, <laughs> that you're then working on a podcast. And then you're not a YouTuber anymore. You're a podcaster. <laughs> yeah. And we we're, were talking about this before. It's like, you know, you became a YouTuber and then that makes you kind of like less of a musician as well because of how much like uh, yeah. time that then takes out of your or life. Right? Even like you had an example of being really good as a musician brings you all these like kind of extraneous opportunities yep. to take away from actual making of music. Yeah. yeah. It's always a, the a side effect. you got to struggle. <laughs> yeah. Uh, yeah. The, the side effect of getting really good at Ableton is being on Ableton less. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, and that meaning like, obviously the better you get at music, the more people want you to do stuff like touring and, and, uh, no. workshops or, yeah, exactly. Even at like, not that insanely advanced of a level, you could, get quite busy i think with uh things that maybe aren't primarily why you got into it yeah yeah, yeah i think so <clears throat> um so we've, we've been having this conversation so for people listening we've been hanging out for a few days now and we've been making music um and i want to talk about a few things that we've we've actually already talked about over the last few days because i feel like we've had like a bunch of interesting conversations yeah, already yeah um and it's just a shame that they weren't recorded so we'll try and recreate them uh, but yeah, one of the things you were saying is that, um, you're trying to sort of re-gear your life now in a little, in a little bit of a way to, um, not necessarily like delete the YouTube thing, but just like unfocus it a little bit so you can write more music, right? Yeah, exactly. I've been, well, so for about 18 months when my channel was growing the fastest, it was because I didn't focus on anything other than YouTube. And it was, it was interesting because it was the only time in my life where I really had one singular goal and, um, kind of turned off other, uh, ideas and interests and, and passions just to be like, okay, let's go all in on this for a little bit and see what happens. And it did pay off. Um, and then, you know, I reached a point with that where it was like, I want to be doing other stuff. And, um, yeah, I don't regret doing that at all. And it's gotten me to amazing places, but I also probably for the past, a little over a year have still been trying to like figure out what the, right next balance is for myself. Um, because 
you know, cranking out two videos a week is insane. <laughs> so I'm, I'm curious. Um, also for those who are listening, who don't know who you are, Andrew has, what is it? 1.8 million or 1.7 million? Just about 1.8 now. Yeah, yeah. Almost 1.8 million subscribers on YouTube. And he got there by making two videos a week of, uh, you did it by basically making a bunch of weird and creative videos about Ableton and music, right? Yeah. I'd been on YouTube since about 2010. And I think I grew to about 300,000 subscribers between 2010 and 2016. And then in the next two years, grew by another million uh, by starting to produce content both like super regularly and also that was more in-depth and, and sharing my creative process, uh, which for whatever reason was, uh, you know, of the many things I've tried to do, the thing that really took off. Um, I'm curious, what is, what did, um, <clears throat> this sounds like such a lame interviewee question, <laughs> but like, I'm curious what a week looked like when you're doing two videos a week like yeah um like how would you would you start on a sunday or a monday or i don't take weekends ever okay so, <laughs> like you, so you would just every be once working. in a while I'll, I'll have a day off where you know i probably once every two years i go on an actual proper vacation trip rather than always traveling for work but um it was kind of a matter of knowing I had a big list of all the ideas that I would want to do and I kind of organized them by which would be the easiest to execute. And so I just kind of look ahead and think about what would be possible to do in the next couple of weeks. And there would always be one that felt like, okay, this is the next one that's going to be able to be launched. And then the other couple would kind of be on the back burner that uh, I'd put a little bit of prep time into or whatever. But ideally it would be focusing on one video at a time for like two, three solid days and then it's done and uh, you're on to the next thing, which is also, I mean, just as a creative kind of exercise, so good because now that I'm not on a particular schedule with my uploads, I find that I'm second guessing myself way more and then going back and like tweaking things or not feeling good about what they are when I used to. Do you but, think in some sense that's uh, detrimental to like have too much time to think about stuff? Yeah, I think it, it's always about a balance and, um, I know that I don't want to go back quite to two uploads a week, but I have thought about whether it makes sense to do something like one every two weeks or, you know, whatever it is, something that really forces me to, um, I think focus on fewer things at a time. It's easy right now for me to be like, Oh, well I can upload anything whenever. So I'll try this out. I'll try that out. I'll start a project, but not get too far with it. You know? Um, so yeah, I think, uh, that some kind of discipline and regularity can be really helpful. <laughs> Yeah, I, I think also you get like a bit of option, like we were talking about yesterday when we were writing music, we had so many sounds to choose from. And then at some point it's like you just never get the thing done because you have too many options and you get what's called option paralysis. And I think that that kind of time limitations on creative endeavors is sometimes good in terms of like a, like a creative limitation. So I, I think creative limitation is great. Like, uh, you know, just limiting yourself to make something like you do that a lot where you, mm -hmm. where you say like, all right, I'm just going to make music using the sound of a, an onion or something like that, or like, you know, using the sound of a, just stuff that I can make with a guitar or, or something like that. And you get something done in a day with that. And you're like, well, that's it. I expended all of the ideas that I could have done with that one thing that I could have thought of on that day. And now you have a finished song because of it, you know, whereas like if you say have every option possible, it's really easy to, to not really land on anything and get nothing done. Right. Yeah, totally. And I think that, Time limitation is one of the most like widely applicable ones uh, to use as far as, as constraints because um, 
I think that, you know, there's certain challenges that I've given myself where it was really great for kind of developing skills or, um, you know, exercising, creativity, all that kind of stuff. But at the end of the day, like the product wouldn't be something that I really was thrilled about. It would still make great content. It would still be like, oh, this is a weird video where, you know, I used whatever strange objects to make music. And yeah, it was a success as far as having executed it, but not as far as like, oh, this is like a tune that I want to put on my Spotify and all that. Kind yeah. Of thing. So, G- Garden Sound did something like that. He did um the 365 project and the mm-hmm. idea was to make not only a song every day, but an accompanying video with that song. And yeah, then on top of that, um, yeah. And he released all of them and he would always complain about like why people weren't like appreciating it as much. And I was like, well, you spent a fucking day on them, man. Like what do you? Yeah, it's <laughs> the right balance is somewhere in the middle. Right, but yeah, um, you seem to and, find that balance by doing the two or three day thing and and getting a lot of subscribers that way. Yeah, I mean, yeah, there, there's a certain. I mean, I was focused more on the quality of the YouTube videos than, in many cases, the quality of the music because I would kind of go into certain concepts knowing that, well, we need an upload that's manageable by this Thursday, and I'm fine to kind of just try something out and not care if it's like not my greatest work because, uh, it'll be fun. You know, it'll get me in front of people again and it'll keep the channel going. And so, yeah, that's great to grow. And then at a certain point, it just became more of a priority for me to focus on the, the personal projects that are more exciting to me than like remixing a YouTube clip. Yeah. So at that point, um, when you're doing two videos a week, you're basically not like riding, you're not just writing well, you're not really ever just writing music for yourself at that point, right? I would, but it would be a challenge to work it into videos. It would be like every fourth video, I'd find a way where it felt like I was able to naturally do what I wanted to do in a way that the YouTube audience would also appreciate. And I think I found more and more formats where that's possible, like with four producers, one sample and different ways that I've, um, I don't know, like if I'm working on a song that has live drums, but I, want to be able to get YouTube content out of it. Maybe I'll make a video that's like how I mic my drum kit. And you know, that can kind of fold into it while I'm tacking on a bit of extra work by being, uh, making it a YouTube video. But yeah, I definitely am trying to avoid the ideas where it's just like, I have to make a video and I'm putting (laughs) all of my other, uh, projects and interests on hold so that I can do something just for YouTube. Yeah. And then it's kind of like, um, at the end of all the YouTube stuff that you do, the video itself is not the thing that ends up being the like money making thing. Right. Yeah. I mean, the AdSense is always, you know, unpredictable to some degree. Um, but, uh, the way that I mainly make income now is through sponsored content or, I mean, kind of a, a similar thing, commissioned commercial stuff. That's just like, it's the same kind of deal. Someone wants to advertise, but those ones happen to not go on my channel. But, um, can you, can you explain what sponsored content is? Cause I actually don't understand what that is. It's just when a creator is compensated to make something to promote whoever it is that uh, is paying them. Um, it could be anything like I've done stuff for people who make plugins. I've done stuff for like a dog food company. Um, and, and would like a sponsored content video for somebody who's making plugins go something like, they give you all the plugins plus a bunch of money and then you just make a music you make a video where you just make music using just those plugins or something like that it can really be anything um you know there's i think for people who are uh getting fewer views a lot of the times it might be just in exchange for a product or you know there could be all different kinds of amounts of money changing hands and there's also totally different levels of um the company's involvement sometimes they want you to 
you go over specific talking points and sometimes they prefer to kind of be more authentic about it and just be like, here's the plugin, use it as the main focus of the video, but we don't really care otherwise. And, um, it's kind of all in between. Some people want a specific video length or. Yeah. That's kind of where I'm at with it at this point. Cause I'm, I I notice you have like tons of gear and you get given lots of gear. I'm kind of like that, but for plugins, like companies give me a shitload of plugins, which I'm sure you get as well. And, um, I've noticed at this point, I just don't have enough time to use them all or even install them all. (laughs) Sometimes like we were talking about this the other day um, where like somebody will give me a plugin, it'll sit in my inbox for like a month before I even am able to get to it because I'm either traveling on the road or I'm just busy working on other projects and just don't have time to learn another plugin at that time. Or I just don't see it as probably being that useful. So I'm just like, "Ah, it's just another synth. I have a million of those. Yeah. and then, yeah, I find the only way that I'll ever do a video on it is if I think it's like really cool. Uh, because I think, um, other, otherwise I think the videos just reek of dishonesty mm-hmm. and, and I think people can tell. And I also think alternatively people can tell if you're doing something that is like very true to you and they, they can see it and be like, whoa, that's cool that that guy's doing something that he really like I can tell loves. Yeah. Yeah, no, it's true. I mean, and I have so many things that people want me to show in my videos. So there's no, like there's there's no need to, to cover something that I think is shit because like, why would I waste time on that when there's also, it's like how many videos would that be? That would end up being like thousands of videos a year. Yeah. 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 (laughs) So I definitely, um, yeah. and, And even actually of the stuff that I have gotten and covered and you know what, I think it's still, too much. I think there's, I've, I've <laughs> reached the limit sometime in the past year of what I could actually, uh, properly make use of. And, um, I, I think it's really true that, you know, knowing your tools and just like taking them as far as they can go is so much better than having access to everything possible. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Creative limitations again, right? Yeah. yeah. Um, I want to talk about the dead mouse thing. So <laughs> oh, yeah, yeah. we, uh, we went to dead mouse's house it was um, awesome. like two nights ago. Yeah. So I landed in Toronto here to write music with Andrew and I, uh, I haven't been in touch with Joel for a while, even though we did a collab, um, I think two years ago at this point. Uh, and I then, like, as soon as I landed in Toronto, I was like, oh, wait, I've got his phone number. <laughs> so I just texted him. I was like, hey, man, what's up? I'm in Toronto, and do you want to hang out? And he was like, yeah, and then just sent his address, and, and we went and hung out there. Um, and I just want to talk about that experience because that was kind of interesting. I think people would find that interesting. Oh, yeah. Yeah, it was really interesting. I <laughs> I just think it's funny that I woke up on Monday, and I was like, I'm going to go pick up Bill from the airport. <laughs> and then I woke up the next day in Dead Mouse's house. <laughs> <laughs> no idea that was going to happen yeah. until like an hour before we even got the Uber over there. Um, yeah. Well, yeah let, I mean, right, let's walk through the experience. Yeah. So we, uh, we get in an Uber at your house. We drive out to his house and it's like in the middle of nowhere. Yeah. Just like um, a bunch of trees around and like even the gate to his house was very nondescript. Like, yeah, you could not you see his house from it's there. Yeah. You wouldn't be able to see it like from the road or anything. Um, yeah. And then, uh, we rock up to his house and he's there with a, a streamer, um, yeah. whose name is rival X factor and yeah. he streams, streams Apex on Legend. Facebook, Facebook. Yeah. What, what is the deal with that? Did he, does he actually stream on Facebook? What he told me was that he was streaming somewhere else. I don't know if it was YouTube or Twitch or something. And then Facebook, uh, paid him to primarily stream on Facebook because they're trying to get their thing going. But don't I you think know. that would be like, 
it would be obviously beneficial like monetarily for him, I guess, if Facebook are paying him to do that. But don't you think it would kind of like ruin the fan base a little bit? Because like everyone's sort of already on Twitch, right? Yeah, I wonder if it, you know, a lot of people would move over for that or if he just was well, able like, how to would build they find another out? audience. Because, you know, usually when, when you follow someone on Twitch, you can turn on notifications and it goes like, hey, so-and-so is streaming or whatever. Yeah, yeah. Imagine like, how would he have moved over? He probably would have had to do a bunch of streams where he's yeah, like, all right, I'm transitioning over to Facebook, go off. and hit this other notification button or something like that. I would imagine that would be a hard transition. Yeah, yeah. It's not a transition I would like to do. It's so hard to even... <laughs> in one video get people to like check out another video yeah exactly <laughs> to get them like to on the same go platform on another platform subscribe all that yeah yeah it seems difficult for sure um but yeah so we got there uh joel showed us his studio um it sounded pretty good i i uh had thought it would have sounded worse than it did because both of his walls are basically made of metal because they're both just synths. covered in synths. Yeah. <laughs> um so i thought it was going to sound a lot worse but it actually sounded a lot drier and a lot yeah nicer. i was surprised but yeah looking around and i guess it's not as apparent when you watch him stream or whatever but pretty much every surface that isn't a synth is like a it's a panel. Some kind of panel, yeah. Yeah, I think kind of the whole walls are just built to be a panel. And it seems decoupled. The whole room seems decoupled. What which, does that mean? Uh, de it means that, like, you know, you've got the double wall thing here. Oh, um, just that, yeah, it's if you built, like, If you built another room inside this room mm -hmm. and you, you built the whole room on top of springs... Yeah, I'm, we're on a floated floor right oh, here. Oh, so too. this is yeah, a decoupled yeah. room. Yeah. Okay, I just didn't hear, hear that term for that before. Yeah. yeah, so it gets rid of, like, mechanical noise and... Um, it isolates you better from the outside and all sorts of stuff. There's a lot of reasons to do it for acoustics yeah. that I don't fully understand because I'm not a physician or an acoustician. Yeah, I mean, I, at the <clears throat> most basic level, it's just like the room within the room and like so few opportunities for vibrations to travel. Yeah, out, exactly. Right? And I noticed the same when I walked into his room, you kind of walk up a little step mm. and that would be because they built the room sort of inside. The, I believe they built it in the garage maybe. Like it seems, oh. seems like the garage might have been double the size of what we've seen and half of it turned into a studio maybe. I'm not really sure. Um, but yeah, the, the studio was cool. He showed us some new music. Uh, that was cool. Then he showed us his garage, which, which had, um, <laughs> had some pretty serious oh, vehicles cars. in it. Uh, what did I have? It had like a, some weird Jeep. Um, yeah. I don't know what that was. And there was like, like a weird Batmobile looking thing. Yeah. Like a like McLaren. Yeah. There was a McLaren and then there was like some racing car and, uh, some other crazy stuff. I'm um, not a car person, so I can't yeah, me either. <laughs> contribute anymore. I know. Yeah. I'm not either. But like when I see cars like that, I'm like, whoa, that's so cool. But as soon as I'm not around them, I just don't care about them. Yeah. 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 <laughs> you can definitely appreciate and admire like the the beauty or the engineering but like mm -hmm. yeah I, then i don't think about them ever again <laughs> yeah I, have you ever driven in a car like that like not you being the, but like have you just ever been in one uh i'm trying to think of if there are any other opportunities other than the <laughs> one kind of main story i have which was i was going to do a commercial for jaguar oh, and yeah. the this agency like like just way jumped the gun because we had just very loosely talked about a timeline or fees or like how this whole um project could be shot and they're like well no 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 you gotta like experience the the jaguar so they loaned me an s-type for a few days and uh i only took it out once because it was like nerve-wracking to be inside something that expensive moving that fast yeah it, like gives you anxiety to drive right yeah yeah i feel the same way it's kind of like 
Um, and there's also like this Murphy's Law thing about it too, I think, where if you're, um, you know, driving around in a shitty car, you can just leave it somewhere unlocked and no one will touch it. No one will scratch yeah. it. Nothing will happen. Like you're kind of giving but, yourself a lot more to worry about. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> you take out something like that and everybody's like looking at it and like, you know, maybe wanting to steal it or maybe wanting to just fuck it up just to be an idiot. Or yeah. like, and then also it's just probably because you have anxiety, you're probably more likely to like crash it and stuff like that too. Or yeah, like I guess like or maybe if I were just ridiculously rich to where at least the cost of the car wouldn't matter, I could feel comfortable driving it around. Yeah, mm. yeah, exactly. Um, um, but yeah, okay, yeah. we saw the, his cars. Okay, yep, yeah. and, and then we, we uh, just and we stood in the kitchen. Yeah, we kitchen. We stood in the kitchen, chatted for a while, drank some beer. Uh, then we went out to his office, and he has this like crazy office that. Basically, it was what a, I guess a pool room. Yeah, kind of a, a pool house has, with a second floor. Uh, yeah, second story that he has his uh, visual show working in. Yeah, and he's like built this whole visual show using code, <laughs> which is kind of crazy. Yeah, I was really impressed. Like, yeah, it was that super he was impressive. like so into that and making really great looking stuff. Yeah, man, it's it's nuts. Like I was saying um, the other day, uh, I, I really feel like there's not a lot of people who are. Uh, who get that big, who aren't just working that hard. Like for instance, we fell asleep at his house. We woke up the next day pretty early after we'd all been drinking a lot. Yeah. And he was already in the, uh, pool yeah, house he's on working. His computer, he was working already on working show. on the show again. <laughs> like when we got there, he was working on the show. And then when we left, he was already working on the show. Like he, he didn't really take a lot of time off. We spent, um, a good few hours in his pool drinking Coronas. That was awesome. <laughs> and, uh, yeah. It's pretty funny. He has like, um, he has a function one sound system over the pool. So you can listen to music through a function one whilst in the pool. And then he also has like a, uh, the projector. Yeah. Like a projector. <laughs> he has like a remote control that you can press a button on. Oh, it's all, fr it's all controlled from his phone. I think. Yeah. Yeah. And, um, the lights and the, literally his whole everything. house is just like controllable via his phone. Oh, and the taxidermy room. Yeah, yes. we got to talk about that. I think, I think your girlfriend might <laughs> oh. be coming to ask a question. Okay. That's right. Can we can we edit, edit this. Yeah, yeah we on. can edit it. What up? Okay, cool. So the taxi dummy room. <laughs> oh, so, man. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. So, so he's got, I mean, I think some pictures have gone around about this, right? Or it's probably in the Linus video I th at the I think, very yeah. least. Uh, yeah, people definitely know about it. Yeah. Um, but yeah, he has like multiple tigers. He has a polar bear. He has a, a giraffe, a giraffe. Which I loved. He has uh, like many squirrels and mice. hammerhead and, shark. Yeah. He has a narwhal horn. Yeah, that was badass. He has we a all whale dick. That up. And yeah, we all <laughs> held the, the walrus, walrus dick. Walrus dick. <laughs> Just like so a, he, a bone that he keeps on his coffee bone. table. <laughs> um, also in his kitchen, there was like a bubble gum machine and I was like, oh, cool. Like a oh, bubble yeah. gum machine. And he, he was like, yeah, I won that by winning a race in like the bubble gum derby or some shit. And I was like, what is that? And he's like, it's a race that happens in Europe. You go there and you race cars. Um, but yeah, super hardworking guy, obviously very deserving of yeah, what yeah. he's done. Yeah. And it was fun to just like mess around in the pool, chatting about whatever. Um, he tried to call Nicolas Cage at one point. That is true. I, I think just to troll. I can't even remember how that came up. Oh, because you did the Nick Cage I did the Nick soundtrack. Cage thing, yeah. And he was yeah. like, I got a Nick Cage story. <laughs> and then told me about how him, where is, where is he 
Bulgaria or something like that. He was like having dinner on his honeymoon or some shit. And Nick Cage came and sat down really drunk and like hassled him and Kelly for a while. And then he was, uh, he was like, oh, I got his number and tried to call him, but it didn't work. So he just went to the next Nick in his phone and called <laughs> Nick Carter from the Backstreet Boys. <laughs> who actually picked up. <laughs> who, who did actually pick up. So we were by proxy kind of involved in a conversation with Nick Carter from the Backstreet Boys. <laughs> Um, but yeah, yeah. Ho- hopefully, I can get Joel on this podcast someday. That'll be pretty fun as well. Yeah, awesome. I feel like he's an interesting dude to talk to because he's just uh, operating on like this other level. Yeah, yeah, and like very opinionated about everything. Yeah, yeah. But it's like uh, I think I think when you get that big, it's kind of necessary to have like such specific taste, right? Otherwise, yeah, otherwise you get pushed around or whatever. Or just um, like how do you develop such a strong brand without? having you know such without being so like specific that's true actually that makes me think of um something i read somewhere that's just about like the people who uh succeed the most actually also fail the most because they make they do the most they make the most decisions and by doing that when they make a decision that's off they correct for it and then they learn from it and they can they keep go on making decisions whereas uh people who are kind of like hesitant paralyzed like not trying things out like playing it safer don't end up advancing because they don't have the opportunity to either succeed or fail yeah that makes sense that's kind of uh, like the theory in ableton or in i guess music in general of getting to quality through quantity yeah right? it's 100%. Kind of like you just write enough tracks and eventually they'll get good that's what i tell everybody everyone who's like man how do i get good at music fast i'm like just make a track every day and in a year you'll be like a hundred times better than you are right now yeah and i still think that applies like if i if, if i think me or you were to make a track every day like if we just started today made a track every single day until this day next year yeah we'd both be way better producers that's there's no way to not <laughs> i would love to find a way to to kind of enact that amidst all the chaos of the the commitments that we already have. But, um, we were kind of talking about this earlier, like the creative, you know, being in the element while you're coming up with music is, is the most rewarding thing. And, you know, you never feel like you've wasted your time or you would rather have been doing something different. And, um, yeah, it's funny that, that, that kind of time and being able to spend dedicated chunks, just messing around, trying stuff out, dwindles as you get more successful at it yeah exactly and also um it's kind of weird that uh things like that like things like music that you know when you do them you feel really good or like exercise you know after you do exercise you feel insanely good and yet you still find like other things to do and reasons not to do these things that you know are like super beneficial to how you feel yeah i feel like i gotta make just a stronger commitment to Probably not a multiple things at once, but yeah, ingraining some of those habits a bit better would be uh, the move for sure. And I think that's, um, yeah, like when I was so, you know, singularly focused on YouTube, all this other stuff fell by the wayside and it was like, okay, for that time. And now I'm figuring out like what would be good to be super regular about. And it always does feel good when you like, yeah, do the exercise or the meditation or the turn off your email for a day and all that kind of stuff. But it's so hard every single time if you're not in the habit of it to actually, um, make yourself do it. Well, I think it's a different, um, 
a different sense of satisfaction that you get from it. I think from stuff like social media and email and uh, alcohol and <laughs> drugs and just like things that bring immediate relief, you get like these instant like small hits of dopamine. Whereas I think for um, something like exercise or something, you get it, but it, you got to work a bit harder for it. And it's like easier to take the smaller reward for the smaller effort maybe than it True. is to take like the bigger reward for the more investment or something like that. Yeah. It's just very like human nature. To, yeah. We're always going to Like the path of least the, resistance. Yeah, exactly. The easiest way out. Yeah, exactly. Hmm. Well, Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Good thing for editing. Yeah. Well, I don't know how far, how much we're actually going to edit this. Um, like I said, I, I mean, there is a guy who's going to edit this podcast. Mm -hmm. uh, his name is Robert Fumo, and he used to work for Bass Gorilla. And oh, cool. As far as I know, he might still work for them. But he was just like, you need to make a Mr. Bill podcast. And I was like, all right. <laughs> and yeah. he'll, he'll edit it all. But uh, I don't know how much I really want him to take out because – I kind of like the idea of unedited podcasts. Like my one of my favorite podcasts is the Joe Rogan one, mm -hmm. and he doesn't edit it at all. He just hit, hits record and just talks. Yeah, and yeah. I feel like There's something it, great about that. Yeah, he is also like an amazing talker though. Like his job is fucking talking. You know, like he a is a podcaster, second an MMA uh, announcer, and third a stand up comedian. Yeah, so yeah, literally yeah. his job is talking. <laughs> He's very good at it. <laughs> He's really good at just being like, all right, new idea and like bringing up a new idea or something. I think for somebody like me, I'm uh, not necessarily good at uh, at generating too much conversation. But like at the same time, I always feel like I get in pretty interesting conversations. So it's worth recording maybe some of them. Yeah, no, for sure. I feel the same way. I mean, um, I, I had a similar kind of thought about you know, I'm in, around so many interesting people all the time. It couldn't be that difficult to sit down with them for half an hour or an hour. And, you know, all these interesting ideas come to the surface. Um, and yeah, for me, it just didn't ultimately end up being an idea quite worth diving into, even though I have one recording that I did do with uh, Dan Wilson, um, mm -hmm. that songwriter in LA, yeah, uh, which I got to like... figure out how to release. But um, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, he does like, uh, what, what do you say, Adele or something? Yeah, well, so he, um, most people probably know him from Semisonic, which was his band that had the hit Closing Time way back in the oh, day. Yeah. And then like every <laughs> bar plays at the end of the night. Yeah, yeah. Um, but he like segued into uh, just songwriting behind the scenes. And he's done a lot of stuff with like Taylor and Adele and um, James Bay, Birdie. Uh, but yeah, he found my YouTube and just invited me out to his place to spend a couple of days hanging out and writing stuff. And, uh, he, he was a super cool guy. Um, kind of the opposite of what I expect when I think about like Grammy winning songwriter living you in expect LA. Them to be like a massive grinder. <laughs> yeah, or something. yeah. He was so like unpretentious and generous and lovely. Um, but yeah, it was, uh, it was really cool to just like, you know, chatting with someone on that level and who has so much experience. Um, there were so many interesting things that came up and I'm trying to figure out like, you know, the few that I captured when I asked him if we could record some of our chit chat, I'm like, yeah, and I have this like hour long, interesting conversation, but where do I put it? Cause I figured out now I'm not going to make a dedicated podcast, but okay. it'll so, end up somewhere. Um, yeah. Right. Yeah. Maybe you could uh, put it on like Patreon for your subscribers there or something. Oh yeah. That's not a bad idea. Like some just extra secret content or something. Yeah. Um, 
Okay, so the songwriter thing <laughs> that made me think of uh, another conversation we had about uh, ghostwriting. Oh yeah. <laughs> so I kind of want to talk about that. Um, so you you were saying you saw a tweet of mine that came up uh, in relation to ghostwriting. Yeah, and how someone I, had asked you. Yeah, for so, like a rate on it. Well, I asked my Twitter like, what did they think was a fair price, and. Uh, it seems like the answer was a lot higher than I, I was going to charge this person, but just for the, uh, so people know what, what I'm talking about. Um, so it's not as like vague or anything. Uh, I got contacted by a girl on the internet who was like watching my videos and she was like, Oh man, I've learned so much from all of your videos and I really, uh, want to write my own music and, you know, start DJing and, you know, basically, um, become a successful electronic music producer. And I was like, cool, just keep doing it. Keep watching videos, watch all the videos you can, learn everything you can, just write music constantly. And I'm sure you'll you'll be fine and you'll get successful eventually, but it might take a while. And then she kept messaging me uh, like every, you know, periodically every few weeks for maybe a month or two or something like that. And eventually she was just like, actually, could you just ghost write some stuff for me? Because... I guess she just got to the point of like frustration, which I guess every producer gets to at some point where you're just like, oh my God, I, everything I make sucks and <laughs> this is way too hard. And this is, you know, cause it is demanding, like sitting in front of a computer all day, just grinding away at editing and tunes oh, to yeah. try and like find the perfect sequence and try and get your mix down right. And all of that stuff, it's, it's hard. Um, and it, and it often it will like cause you to have like existential crises and stuff like that. <laughs> yeah, constantly. So um, I guess she hit that point for the first time and was like, oh, I can't deal with that. And then uh, asked me if I could uh, ghostwrite some stuff for her. So I was like, sure, I'll do it for fifteen hundred bucks. And then I just didn't hear from her anymore. And then I was like, wow, is that price like too high? That's that seems like a pretty low price. And then I asked Twitter. I was like, uh. You know, if somebody asked me to ghost produce a tune for them, I said 1500 bucks. Uh, obviously didn't say who it was. Uh, and then literally everybody in the thread was like, dude, that is fucking not enough. Like you. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I think even an, another angle though, too, is that she's just starting out. Like, and for someone to want another person ghostwriting their stuff at that stage, like, it's either like you really should be paying because like, that's just the route you're going to take. Like you're not going to step up your game and produce your own stuff. You're going to have someone else then reach out to whoever you want. But it also felt kind of like, you know, you're so beyond her that, um, yeah, yeah. She should be expecting to like really have to shell out for something like that, which is, you know, a, a remarkable kind of uh, amount of, you're really giving of yourself when you're going to write something and just completely. Yeah. Well, like in, in my credit. mind, I thought, um, it's not that bad of a deal for me because, you know, I could probably bang out a tune that she would find suitable for, in, you know, maybe a day or two max. It would be like one or two days of like solid work and I could probably get it done. And then, yeah, it's an easy 1500 bucks that pays my rent for the month, you know? Um, so I was like, yeah, that's, that seems easy. But yeah, then she didn't respond. I was like, what price would have been the right price? Like 50 bucks. Fuck that. Like this. Yeah. And I mean, I mean, there's so many people who are out there making beats, you know, for 50 or a hundred bucks. Um, and 
Yeah, but the beats for rappers, but like, yeah, and those beats for rappers are literally loops. Yeah, yeah, exactly. They're basically loops. They're just made on a drum machine, or they're just like you know some simple sampling. And not to say that there's anything wrong with that. Like that stuff's great, but you can make twenty of those in a day. Yeah, for sure. And sell them all for fifty bucks each, and then that's like a day's work. You're still ending up making like you know five hundred to a thousand dollars in a day if you sell all of those beats. Yeah, I know. I guess like there, <laughs> there probably isn't really a proper way through. Cause I was going to say like, well, maybe she should have, you know, if she's really just starting out and wanting to try to grow something, like reach out to someone that would somehow be more affordable, like not quite as successful or, you know, not quite as good maybe even, but still better than her. But on the other hand, it's like, well, getting something quality is just going to come at a price and whether you're starting out or whether you're like doing your own thing, but just want another writer, like, I don't know, like they don't make cheaper Lamborghinis for people who (laughs) want to drive, but don't have a lot of money. Um, Yeah. So I'm curious as to like uh, two things, I guess. One, um, like, how do you feel about ghost producing in general? Like, do you think it's destroying the scene or do you think it's bad for the scene? Or do you think it's like, you know, do you have any issues with it or any stipulate, like any problems with that at all? Um, and then secondly, how much would you charge if you were to ghost produce a song for somebody and and would that rate slide depending on certain (laughs) things? I think, um, I don't have a problem with it only because I think there are so many things in life that just go uncredited anyway. And so if it's kind of like, well, the credit's going to the wrong place. I mean, I feel like that's already happening even when, if you, you know, if you look at a huge song and there's like 12 writers on it. Yeah, they're credited, but still to the millions of fans out there, it's just like, that's Ariana Grande's song and they don't care. And, you know, uh, I think I I would personally feel bad about a a ghostwriting situation where they at least didn't get like some points on the release because I just feel like, you know, at least if you're not going to give them any of the glory, like give them what would be a fair share on how the song performs rather than a flat rate, but also, yeah, I mean, it, I would look at it as another kind of work and, uh, people want to believe that music is like creative and from the heart and, you know, has integrity all the time, but it's also kind of, there is <laughs> like a big part of the industry that's just like sort of functional and yeah, systematic. Yeah. And- it's like, uh, I don't know, like content creation or like, uh, uh, yeah, you, you, you know, just using building blocks to, to make something to suit a need. And, you know, I come from a a background of commercial music production where, um, you know, sometimes I don't feel like I want to put my all into something because I'm like, oh, this is going to like go on top of a a diapers ad or something. (laughs) But um, yeah, you have to do the the right thing for the job. Um, And yeah, I I, I guess I've never quite been in a situation where it's like, I made something so amazing and I wish it were like released under my name rather than being the, the jingle for this company that I'm working for or whatever. Um, yeah, I don't know. I guess I, I feel like everything's okay and some things would be nice to have. (laughs) I have no idea what I would charge for like a proper ghost, right? Though. Totally. And I also think, um, at that level that you're trying to sell music, if you're trying to sell it on like a marshmallow level or something like that, 
the music is really not the be all and end all of that project. It's yeah, the branding like, is. There's a lot so to do with the branding. It. There's a lot to do with the marketing. Uh, who your agent is, how hard they hustle, how much clout your agent and your manager have, as well as you, obviously. Um, how good are you are at putting sets together? How good you are on the microphone at a show? How, like, there's so many things. Like, how good of a performer you are? How how good you are at just I don't know so many things. It, uh, really, the music is just sort of like a like a business card. It's like mm -hmm. one part of the equation, you know. I was talking to um, Subtronics about uh, like being a popular artist the other day and he's an artist who kind of all of a sudden blew up um, pretty much towards the end of last year and early this year. He's gotten really big and now he's like selling out everything. Like, you know, I don't know how big he's, they're really big. Like every time I see a show of his, I'm like, wow, there's a lot of fucking people. <laughs> um, he was telling me there's like five things you need to be really successful. He was like, you have to have you have to be good at music. You have to uh, have a really good team, like really good management, really good agent, stuff like that. You have to have really good social media skills. You have to have like a personality that people can fall in love with. And then you have to have some something, I can't remember the last thing it was. It might've been like something that people can like identify with, you know? Um, and I think the artists who get the biggest have two main things. They have A, something that a lot of people can identify with. Uh, and secondly, uh, oh yeah, something that everybody can like love too. So for instance, uh, like Tipper is a good example. I feel like if you like weird stuff, you'll like Tipper. If you like heavy stuff, you'll like Tipper. If you like really delicate, soft stuff, you'll like Tipper. Like there's so many reasons to like him musically. Uh, and as far as like identity stuff, you know, excision is huge. Um, because there's so much to, I, I mean, he's obviously a really good producer, but there's also so much to identify with, like, you know, the whole X thing and, you know, kids can be like, oh yeah, I'm going to go to a show, throw out my X, draw a big X on my school table and fuck the system. Like, <laughs> yeah, there's like so much there to, to, to be at identity with, to be like, I'm an excision fan, you know? Yeah, that's like true. That you, has a you, lot to do with it. Th yeah. There's a whole cultural element of what people connect with and, and what you make them feel that is um, enhanced by, if not mostly due to the kind of visuals and, you know, the, the vibes you put out on social media, like everything about what it says to the world for them to line themselves up with you, um, which, yeah, is, is a huge part of, I think, creating a community and, 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 and driving fan loyalty. Yeah. And that's, so in that sense, the ghost production thing is kind of like, uh, you're really just like playing a small part of the 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 role of the project in at that level, right? And in some of those cases, um, the artist uh, who's asking you to go produce the thing is the manager and the agent for the project, you know? Mm -hmm. So, for instance, um, I think this is the case with uh, I don't know if I should say it, <laughs> but uh, <laughs> there is like some some big dubstep artists that that do that who are getting people to produce their music for them and then they for all intents and purposes take the manager slash agent role and then they also are the performer but they don't write the music so i mean it definitely takes a certain kind of you know vision and and skill set to be able to get that thing off the ground and uh yeah it's nice when it's the same person doing the music but yeah the, those <laughs> those people who are actually producing the music in all likelihood don't have the other things that it takes to really advance something 
something yeah. like that, you know? Well, it's pretty rare to um, see somebody who has all of those skills, like who's just as good at producing as Tipper as they are management as like, you know, Marshmallow's manager. Mm-hmm. That's, I don't know anyone in the world who's like <laughs> as good at both of those things in the same human being. So it's pretty unreasonable to expect that of, of a lot of artists. And I think a lot of people on the front end kind of do ex- expect that they're kind of like man it's so amazing like how big this person got and how good they are at music and how like you know yeah i think that um i mean we just have an imbalance in how we uh, celebrate people i think you know because we totally. and that and that is part of the business because it's like well yeah the manager does so much but proportionally the amount of, of people that care about what the manager does <laughs> is way less than just like who sang the thing or, you know, even in some cases, like who's the prettiest in the band. It's like, you know, if you look at like, uh, what is it? Fallout boy, where it's like the, the bassist became kind of more of a celebrity than the singer in that particular scenario, just because he was a bit more charismatic, photogenic, all that kind of stuff. Huh. Um, it's interesting. I didn't know that. Yeah. <laughs> I guess the opposite applies too, right? Like, um, the way that we kind of scapegoat people as well. Mm-hmm. Especially on the internet, <laughs> be like we've expended the ghostwriting conversation. Well, oh, yeah, I mean, wait. what are, what are your thoughts on it? I don't know if we've. Well, really my my it. thoughts on it is that uh, I'm I'm kind of with you. I don't think there's much of a problem with it. Mm-hmm. Um, I think, yeah, it's just one part of the puzzle in music. I want to be on the music writing side of the puzzle, and I'm not really interested in having anybody write my music for me. I don't think mm-hmm. anybody could write my music for me. Um, and I like to be in a position where nobody could write my music for me. I feel yeah. like that's endearing. Um, makes me feel good. Uh, and, and, you know, I think there's like something important about being the gatekeeper to what you do. Like uh, to me, that's like uh, like a lot of rhythm, I would say, is disposable mm. in the sense that it's not bad, but you could hire 10 people to play the same show. You know, yeah, yeah, yeah. like you could hire x rhythm guy or y rhythm guy they probably both sell a thousand tickets they probably both fucking play the most of the same tracks <laughs> like, <laughs> or they play you know like a bunch of the same tracks they'd, they'd both play um i like the idea that like if you can't get me you can't get me you know like and yeah. there's no other replacement for what i do like that's kind of where i'm at with it mentally i think yeah for the, the kind of flip side of my situation of if I'd be okay with someone ghostwriting for me, I mean, I would rather just collaborate with people. Like if they're going to be involved in some way, like, let's just make that a thing. Um, and I've had the opportunity and, and some conversations with people where it would be like, well, we could keep the YouTube channel growing more and give me more time to focus on music. If I just hired people who could get a feel for my style and like, you know, do covers the way I do covers. And then all I'd have to do is sing the vocal, be in front of the camera. They'd take care of everything else. But I just would feel personally gross about that, even though I, I don't care if someone I'll else just says like that. a little bit disingenuous like for or something. me, yeah, I would just rather like, that's not what I'm in it for, you know? Yeah. So, well, it doesn't, yeah. Like you said, you, you're trying to re-gear your life right now to do more music writing, right? Yeah. So yeah, that's exactly. kind of seems like it would be one of your focuses. Yeah. Yeah. And if it means that I can't do as much of uh, the things like YouTube or commissions that help pay for things like, you know, finding that balance as well, but it I think is much better to me than, you know, growing for the sake of growing by reinvesting everything into like other people who would do the work instead of me. <laughs> well, on the other hand, though, it's like uh, 
video editing is like, for instance, not something that you want to be like the best in the world at or something. Right. right? Yeah. And I'm so, very comfortable handing that. So you're side comfortable of handing off. that side of yeah, things off to yeah. somebody else who can kind of like get it pretty close to your editing style or whatever. Yeah. Yeah. I have a one and a half editors right now. I have a full time and a part time, not f entirely editors. They also help with lots of other kind of random things, um, that YouTubing needs, but, um, yeah, I'm very happy to like give them all the footage. They do a first cut. I'm usually in there at least once to kind of pace it the way that I feel um, expresses my ideas best. But they definitely have gotten incredibly close to kind of doing exactly the edit that I would have wanted to do myself or, or sometimes a better one. So, yeah. Yeah. I mean, I have followed you for, I think, since you were the editor and then since they started editing and I haven't noticed a difference. So. Nice. Yeah. <laughs> it seems to be like the quality has stayed the same and you've yeah, just opened up more of your time, which is good. Yeah. Yeah. I think it's worked out really well. I haven't really even talked about that on my channel. I guess it, there hasn't been a natural way to bring it up because mainly I'm just talking about music, but I think I would at some point like to just be more explicit about the help that I do and don't have. I think some of my viewers are getting a little too like worshipful of me, <laughs> like being able to do all this stuff. And I kind of would be like, no guys, I have a, uh, hours and hours of my time back now that I have hired people. <laughs> Wait, there's actually people who are complaining that you don't edit your own videos now? No, not, not that so much. There's people who, um, well, I, I don't know if that would ever be the case. I wonder if some people would be like, ah, oh, it's really not your product anymore. But I think a lot of people understand that YouTubers have editors. It's more that people, you know, ask me like, where, how did you get more hours in the day than the rest of us? Because not only are you making all this music, you're also making all these videos and there's so much editing that goes into them. And, you know, assuming that it is a hundred percent of my labor. Well, yeah, the trick is obviously there's, you can't scale unless you can put your trust in other people. Yeah. That's like business 101. Yeah. <laughs> like unless you can yeah start to work with other people and hand off jobs like you, yeah, humans only have 24 hours in a day. And there's only so many ways that you can spend those hours, you know? Yeah. So you see, that's, that's the other thing that I find so impressive about somebody like Dead Mouse is like, he, yeah, he works with a lot of people, but he doesn't hand off a lot of the work. Like, I mean, as far as the show goes, like that's, his, that's all him. Like he, yeah. he made it all the video and wild for me to see that firsthand, let alone learn that that was the case. But yeah, yeah I would say that's the, the case for like very few artists. I think most artists hand the visual side off to somebody else. Yeah. <laughs> I would never in a million years develop all the video content for my own show. Yeah. Is video content something you've ever made in terms of, I mean, obviously you make YouTube content, but um, is there, has, have you ever gotten into like C4D or After Effects or anything? No, that was something that I very tentatively kind of tried out just to be able to do like nicer titles and stuff in my videos way back in the day. And then I quickly decided even for like the basics, I'd rather put that time into more music stuff. Yeah. Um, yeah. That, that's exactly how I feel about shit like this too. I'm like, <laughs> how much time do I want to put in it versus how much better do I want to actually get at music? And like, for instance, I want to finish an album this year. Right. Mm -hmm. So I can't start editing podcasts no. like, <laughs> and I can't like really go down the hole with YouTube and I can't really tour that much more either this year. Like, I mean, if I, I have a deadline. I actually wanted to finish two albums this year, but it's looking more like they're going to become one. Mm. Uh, I'm going to remove some tracks and, and then combine the two albums. What's that process like for you of deciding 
um, you know, what, what tracks kind of make it like, if it was going to be two different albums, why were they going to be separate and what's, how are you choosing to whittle things down? So at the start of the year, I had this idea of, I want to make a really heavy album that like Wooks can like, mm-hmm. uh, and, you know, this whole like Wook bass style that, uh, is really big right now on Wakan and really big on like, you know, some of the other labels kind of surrounding that scene. I wanted to make an album pandering to that crowd. And then I wanted to make another album that was just all IDM and I wanted to release that on my own label. Uh, But then I got on Mushrooms one night and sat in my studio and listened to all of my my works in progress. And a lot of the stuff that I was writing for the Banger album, I was like, why the fuck am I doing this? This (laughs) I was just like, this isn't me at all. Hmm. Um, Some of them were still good and and some of them I was like, yeah, I I could still work on that. So what I did is I just took the best ones from that album and then a lot of the IDM ones I wasn't huge on either. Hmm. Uh, And I don't know, I feel like... um, when I'm on mushrooms, I'm just like so much more honest with myself rather than, because I don't, I have like less of an ego, you know? Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I feel like a lot of the decision of like making these bangers came from like an egotistical place. It's like, I want to play bigger shows. I I want more money. I want like, you know, just a bunch of stupid fucking stuff. So I don't know. I was just like, I'm not a huge fan of a lot of this stuff because I know that if you remove the egotistical reasons from it, like musically, I just don't like it that much. It doesn't Mm -hmm. make me feel personally that good. So I just pulled all the stuff that I, that was making me feel good in that state, put it all into a folder. And I'm like, that's the album. I just need to finish it. Do you feel like there's a cohesion still? Yeah. Yeah. I I feel like it's more cohesive now. Mm. It makes more sense. Like now that I hear it that way, I'm like, yeah, that's it. You kind of like have a different axis along which to, um, you know, theme out the material, I guess. Yeah. Well, originally I was like, I was just kind of looking at it tunnel visionally, like I needs to be a banger album and an IDM album. Whereas now I'm just kind of looking at it as like, no, it just needs to be like an interesting album. And I mean, vibe wise, like, yeah, there's, you know, it goes heavy, soft, heavy, soft sort of, but I don't know, overall, I feel like it has an arching curve of like a vibe to it. Yeah. You know, interestingly, the album that I most recently put out called Alabaster was like, uh, it probably if I had done it the most, like in my mind, cohesive way, it would have been more like four or five EPs or something like that. And then at a certain point I was like, you know, even though I feel like a lot of these things are different or came from different places, I think I would rather try to, um, put it all in one statement. And I started, uh, uh, was probably like 80 or 90% done when I made that decision. And I started to think about a few ways that I could tie things together a bit and, you know, worked on the transitions and the, the order of everything. But, um, I really like it now that it's actually like, there's cohesion to it, but there's also some moments that just kind of like completely take a left turn. And I think it's more representative of me than the albums where I've tried to be like, okay, well this is like the poppy one and this is the IDM one and all that kind of thing. And the response has been really great too, where people are like, Oh, I love how surprising this is, or I love how um, diverse it is. I have some questions about that album. Yeah. Um, I'm curious, is it something that you sat down to write because you were like, I'm going to make an album or was it like sort of products of YouTube videos that you then repurposed for an album? There were, uh, I think a few of the tracks did come out of YouTube videos. Um, and it's probably like, I don't know, maybe more than half of the music that I end up making for a YouTube video doesn't become something that I want to release, but every once in a while there is one that I'm like, ah, there's something there and I want to hold on to it. Uh, and just, I, I really prefer to release longer form records than singles. So I'm usually looking for these kind of cohesive threads 
and then I had kind of like multiple of these threads that I was sort of pulling together and I was like, well, some of these just don't seem to be as strong on their own, even though if there's like, like a, a couple of the songs are just like one minute long raps where I felt like this is like so fun and high energy and I don't feel like I want to develop it more. I feel like it's a great little like punch and then it's done. But if your album is just six of those, like <laughs> it's yeah. not really great. So I like how they sit as like just interesting little, um, well, a lot of the songs you make for YouTube videos, it's kind of like the reason they're so cool is like because of the video, right? Yeah, like for the sure. song on its own is, you know, a bunch of random noise. But if you see how that noise was sourced, you're like, well, that's kind of makes it more interesting. Yeah. And there were some tracks that I considered for this album that were kind of made in that way. Like one that I did using all like samples of lizard videos. Um, and I was like, I really loved how that one came out, but I had to come to the realization that what was primarily good about it was if you knew that these were all lizard sounds and the track just kind of out of context on its own, just as a piece of music, wasn't going to be strong enough. So I, mm -hmm. I made some calls that way. Yeah. I feel like, um, there's something about like sort of showing somebody how to enjoy a piece of art that really makes it, makes or breaks it sometimes. Yeah. So for instance, like, um, Amon Tobin, Izam, it's like, you listen to the album and it's a great album but you watch it live and it's kind of like the visuals tell you how to enjoy it. Mm. Like, did you ever see the Eyes yeah. show? Oh man, it's crazy. Um, and in that sense, like the, the video, the visual show is like a million more times amazing of an experience in my opinion to see than to, than to listen. And for instance, um, I think Orteca used to do shows just using Max MSP, but for the longest time it was just both of them crunched over a laptop. Yeah. And from the audience perspective, it just sounded like noise. So they were just like, we don't know what the fuck these people are doing. They could just be sending emails and playing a <laughs> noise file off their computer. Yeah, yeah. And therefore they wouldn't find it that impressive, right? But then what they started doing was um starting their shows off with a PowerPoint presentation that would be like, this is what we're doing like oh, on our computers. That. That's awesome. <laughs> I think it was them or it might have been somebody else, but they were basically like starting their shows off by explaining to people how they were supposed to think about the show, you know? Yeah. And therefore people were like, oh yeah, now I like find it interesting and fun. And, it and makes I, a lot of sense. And I feel the same way about like um, music for YouTube videos kind of because the person like seen how it was made and, and you've kind of like explained why it's impressive. <laughs> it becomes like more impressive than just a piece of music standing on its own or whatever. Yeah, I think so. And there's like a, a satisfaction, I think, to kind of setting up an expectation or a challenge or whatever it is and then delivering on that promise sort of, you know, if, if people came into this video and they were intrigued by the premise and you've set it up and now you execute it and hopefully you execute it well, then they're enjoying that. Whereas just kind of like throwing the finished result at them would be so much harder to kind of, you know, for them to find where to land. Um, but I think it's absolutely true on a lot of levels how, you know, you just, a lot of art enjoyment is about priming. <laughs> it's about like, well, Absolutely. did my cool friend recommend this album to me? <laughs> like that's yeah. literally going to affect my experience of it a little bit at least. Yeah. Speaking of peer influences, I have this like idea about like why we like what we like. I think it can be like narrowed down to three things. Um, your biological imperatives. So like the mm -hmm. ridges and stuff of your ears and like the length of your ear canals and how many hairs you have in your ears and all that kind of stuff your peer influences, like what your friends like and what, what your bigger brother told you to listen mm -hmm. to and all of that kind of stuff. And then also your uh, 
Oh, environmental influences. So like, you know, if you're if you're a surfer or something, you might get like hit in the head with waves a lot and therefore you might have some damage to your ears. Um, like for instance, uh, Flume is a surfer, right? And I think his music's like got some pretty piercingly bright stuff in it and I have a feeling that oh. might be why. Even though I think at this point he has help with people mixing it, he's probably also there too going like, no, no, like make that resonant thing yeah, more yeah. resonant. Yeah, and his, his tendencies will be to go for those kinds of timbres when he's writing. And yeah, he has quite a sharp sound mm -hmm. and I think that might be why. And and also, um, you know, if you've lived next to a factory your whole life because you, you know, you grew up in the suburbs of Boston in the industrial area or something, I don't know. Yeah. Maybe yeah. you'd have like some hearing damage from that because you walked past the industrial area every day to get to the school bus or something i don't know you know so i think that those three things i think is kind of what really shapes what we like like how we hear music which can be whittled down to biological stuff and environmental stuff mm. and then your peer influences i think has a big thing to do with it as well yeah i think it's huge and i think it's i mean i see it happen all the time even with just um uh, so many people that i'm in contact with who are trying to you know do whatever thing they're doing on social media and how it's always easier to get new followers if you already have followers like you just have this leg up because you have this the first thing that people see is like oh other people like this this guy's cool <laughs> and yeah, yeah absolutely and um, i've i've noticed that in myself i've like had, yeah. i've had friends send me music and i've been like uh eh, it's whatever like i don't think it's that cool and then i and then they've uploaded it and it's gotten millions of plays yeah. and i've been like maybe i'm wrong about yeah. this song like maybe it's cool and i listen to it again and i definitely hear it differently i remember um when i was in high school there's like a Foo Fighters record that came out and one of my least favorite songs they ended up releasing as a single as like the fourth single or something of that album cycle. And then all of a sudden I was like, oh, actually it's pretty good. <laughs> I'm into it. It's, oh, it's catchy. And it was so weird to see that shift to where, you know, I thought it was one of the weakest joints, but just having, I guess, them decide that, no, we want to spotlight this one. I gave it a proper chance or something. That literally happens in nature too um the more mass something has the more it like draws in towards it you know like the the more mass a planet has uh the more right. things yeah. orbit just, just gravity yeah exactly maybe maybe emotions are gravity <laughs> <laughs> something in relate it seems like the same thing to me yeah yeah there's this weird pull yeah yeah like you know black holes they just pull everything into it that whole like Steve Jobs reality distortion field thing of like someone who, What's that? oh, they say this about Steve Jobs and about uh, Bill Clinton. I think they're starting to say it about Elon Musk, about people who have a reality distortion field, which is essentially like they're so confident and charismatic that everything around them kind of just bends to their will. <laughs> I Yeah, I agree. I think like if you're like insanely confident on a thing to the point where like you feel in your own head that you can't fail at it, mm -hmm. you will definitely be successful. Like, yeah. <laughs> I guarantee it. Because be able you to bring other people a long way more easily. And yeah, but also it's like, if you're that confident about it, you're not going to give up. Like you're just going to oh, keep yeah. doing the thing until you, until it works. And it, like you were saying before about people doing a lot of shit that fails, it kind of takes that level of confidence to be able to fail and then just keep, and still, and yeah, still do stuff. In yeah. It. yeah. Like, for instance, I'm sure when you started YouTube, you probably uploaded some videos that didn't get that many views, oh, yeah. and, but you like were pretty heavy on wanting to be successful on YouTube, right? So you're just like, oh, well, let's make more videos. Yeah. I mean, it was definitely a journey because I think I, 
I was really interested in YouTube and I, and just trying stuff out. And for the first few years, it wasn't my primary focus, nor was it really like all about growing there. And, uh, at a certain point I kind of decided like, this is the best opportunity I have to create what's going to be meaningful to me while also being able to reach people and, and build a career that hopefully will be longer lasting. Uh, so that's when I was like, okay, let's go all in on YouTube. And, and, and yeah, that was like, I think it kind of touches on almost everything we talked about today. It was like getting to quality through quantity and it was about trying again and again, regardless of failure. And, um, yeah, I want to talk about also um, the relative success of things because we, oh, we were talking true. about that earlier today. You were saying if you if you uploaded a video these days that got 20,000 views, you would see that as like basically a fail. Yeah, like that hasn't happened in years. So at this point, if something did that poorly, it would be like the worst thing I'd ever put on my channel since, you know, I started growing. And uh, but I have to, you know, think back to maybe eight years ago or something like that, where that would have been an amazing video on my channel mm -hmm. and I would have been so happy about it. And nothing's changed about the number 20,000 and nothing's <laughs> changed about like turning a camera on and uploading a clip to YouTube, but everything surrounding my experience of that has, has changed. And so it's, yeah, it's, it's important to remember to be grateful and, and I, I, yeah, I feel the same way about music stuff. It's like, if I upload something now that gets a couple of thousand plays, I see that as, as a fail. <laughs> Whereas <laughs> if I upload something and it gets a million plays, I see that as like successful. And then somewhere in the middle I see as average. Um, and we we're talking about also like the, um, the r relativity between somebody like us and dead mouse and dead mouse and marshmallow. Yeah, no, it's definitely hard to remember that you shouldn't play the comparison game. Um, I, it's, it's wacky how much I feel like I have to remind myself of that, but everyone like has their own thing to offer. And, uh, it's, it's so dangerous. I think, especially in this day and age where we have at the, you know, at our fingertips, all of these numbers that we can compare to our numbers, like following us everywhere. And I think that that's never the, the way to find fulfillment or happiness or anything. Yeah, no, I think, um, I think if you always compare yourself to others, you'll always be unhappy because there's, you can compare yourself in so many ways and you can't be the best at everything. Right. So you could compare like your YouTube numbers to somebody else and you might be like, yeah, I got more YouTube numbers or whatever. <laughs> but then like you go to Spotify and compare your Spotify numbers and you're like, damn, they have like <laughs> 5 million times more the Spotify numbers that I have or something like that, you know? Yeah. There's always this the grass is always greener thing. Right. But, um, like we were, we were also talking about earlier, um, the cost of getting bigger is, uh, there's so many like detriments to it. There's a lot of positive stuff about, about becoming more successful. I mean, you can measure success a bunch of different ways too, really, can't you? Like some people would say just success to be measured only by like money. Other people would be like, I don't know how many people I have sex with. Other people might be like, I don't know how much weight I can lift in the gym. You know, like there's so many measures of success. Um, and I, yeah, I mean, the, the cost at like really doing more stuff to get more successful is that you're just more busy and you just have less time. Yeah, I think that's... Uh the struggle that we're both sort of thinking about a lot these days, as far as like the opportunities that we get and what we most enjoy and most want to pursue. And I think also it's kind of to do with how tricky it is to predict exactly where things are going to go, just because everything has changed so quickly as far as, you know, how artists operate or, um, how, how they find success. So it's hard to, to pin your hopes on anything. Um, 
but yeah, just the fact that, uh, it takes a lot of discipline to do the stuff that matters the most to you, because once you get to a certain level of success, doing that means turning away a lot of things that, uh, in the moment feel more successful maybe than spending an extra day like mucking around on sound design or. But that's yeah. also the, the thing is like uh, on the other end, when you have like too much spare time and all you're doing is mucking around with sound design, then I think you like yearn the other stuff, right? And you're, like, <laughs> you're like, oh, I want to be more busy doing like bigger projects. Yeah, for sure. And uh, yeah, and I think the balance is unique for everybody. Um, but it, yeah, it's something you have to be mindful of. Otherwise you, uh, you know, it, it can become kind of not as bad as like just a normal job. That's really a grind, but you, you do end up giving all your time and energy away to maybe not the thing that you actually got into it for. Yeah. That in some ways you can think of that as um, like a privileged position to be in too, right? Like oh, yeah, being able to do these bigger things. First to, world problems. Right. But in like doing these bigger things, you kind of realize that you you realize what you really want you know mm. you're like oh fuck actually i didn't want to do this thing that eats up all my time and it, now like i you know i still feel the same way as i did before i did all the big things and mm. i guess i have to like work uh, on my problem some other way Pro the problem being like how to feel the most fulfilled in life right yeah ah, that is another really deep and important thing that uh, i think i you know realized a little while ago too is that like all of these things have their upsides and downsides, but like the way that I think about myself and feel about myself and, and what I get out of life is up to me. And, and yeah, the, the kind of external stuff doesn't really change that. Yeah. That happened uh, to me when I played at Red Rocks, mm. like I played to Red Rocks to like, I don't know how many, like a lot of people. And it was like the most fucking crazy experience and the craziest feeling. And 20 year old me would have seen that and been like, Oh yeah, at that point you've made it and you've got no emotional problems after that, I guess. <laughs> <laughs> but it's like literally while I was on stage playing, I like had that realization of like, wow, like this doesn't fix a ton of my like issues. Yeah. It doesn't mean that. And the, well, I think it was now. like right after I got off stage, I got off stage and I was like, Whoa, that was sick. And like in the moment I was like, yeah, this is a good moment. Like I feel good. But at the same time I had this like other feeling of like, well, I now realize that doing that, doesn't really solve like any emotional issues I have or like you know, any of these like exterior things. But then I had this like third feeling, which was like, that's good. That's privilege. Like I I'm so like happy to have been able to, to experience that because mm -hmm. now I know that that, that those kind of experiences don't solve anything. Mm -hmm. And now I know I have to like start thinking about stuff from like an, like a different level or something, you know, there's a really good Jim Carrey quote. That's something like, I wish everyone had the chance to be super rich and famous just so that they could realize that it's not what they actually totally. want or need. Dude, yeah. <laughs> it's, that's so, yeah. yeah. Cause absolutely. like, not even that like you or I are like on any kind of crazy celebrity level, but I think having any kind of success, you know, you, you start to be very directly confronted with what you thought about success and, and what you thought it would mean to you or give to you and how, uh, you know, like as cheesy as it is, like happiness and fulfillment has to come from within and has to be kind of worked for, um, on a different level. 
Yeah, yeah, totally. Yeah, that's cool that he he said that. Um, but yeah, it's, uh, it is nice to like to have those experiences, right? Where you, where you like, I mean, you've you've surely had it too, where you become more successful and you realize, oh shit, like <laughs> I got to think. <laughs> like it is it is like crazy to me that so many people will never have that. You know, so many people will constantly be in the rat racing, and they mm-hmm. won't be in a position even as we are to to know that like that these things don't really like they're not the be all and end all of life and that's it's kind of sad to know that like most people won't have that but at the same time i'm really glad that i have that you know yeah no i think it's definitely well culturally we've just put so much importance or or emphasis maybe is a better word on uh you know the, the certain types of indicators of success being the only indicators of success and yeah, like money and housing yeah. yeah and it's all about like just what other people think of you which really solves nothing <laughs> compared to you know just how you are with yourself but i i think that's one of the things that i've sort of been i've tried to be mindful of in the way that i um approach my output and approach I mean, the way I do social media or things like that, like I really don't want to feel like I'm too busy for someone or, you know, above anybody, all that kind of stuff, even though, uh, it is impossible for me now to respond to every fan who reaches out and, you know, that sucks and it feels terrible, but, um, I don't know. I think I I try to like with my content, for instance, just be more accessible and just be like more, just be a normal human. And I think, I don't know the way that I see a lot of artists operating. And I, I, I think it's great to have a brand and a, and to do something as a, a cool project. But I do think that sometimes being really like untouchable and on a pedestal, um, is just harmful to a lot of, I don't know, the, the general public psyche, <laughs> something about like, it is, yeah. it's just how we, uh, but that's been happening since like, it. yeah, that's been happening since day one, right. With religion, yeah, 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 yeah. Like putting somebody on a pedestal. And, and I think in some ways humanity maybe needs that, like they need, uh, you know, they need to be hopeful. Yeah. That's, I think why maybe God was you. invented in the first place. <laughs> well, actually I think God was invented because of, uh, probably drugs. That would make a lot of sense. Yeah. <laughs> I think a lot of people did drugs and had like religious experiences and then were like, holy shit, like, there's something else. And then try to like personify it in certain ways. I'm sure. I think there was like, um, I'm pretty sure there's like a bunch of theories about that, that I don't really understand where like religion was started from mushrooms and stuff like that. Oh, I haven't heard any of those. I mean, yeah, I'm just pretty agnostic at this point. Mm-hmm. Don't don't put too much thought into it one way or the other. Were you religious at any point in your life? I grew up with, uh, yeah, going to church and whatnot. And um, there's still a lot about certain religious traditions that I find really valuable. But I, I don't kill think, people. Yeah. <laughs> even though they kill people. Yeah, yeah. Or, I mean, there, I mean, just a lot of stuff about, like, meditation or, um, yeah, how to treat other people. But... I don't think that that stuff is like exclusive to religion either. Like I think you can (laughs) become a very good person having never been in that world or anything. And I think the, the main thing for me was just that there was so much uncertainty and it just felt more natural, more easy to kind of let things be what they are rather than, I don't know, trying to define all these things that I feel like no one has ever been able to define for sure, yeah. Um, I, I definitely think like a lot of the parts of religion uh, are just based off like generally being a good person. It's like don't have sex with your neighbor's wife, don't kill people, don't steal other people's shit. Uh, and there's like a bunch of other sins too. But it gets 
confusing i think when people start like starting wars over it and starting to justify mm. stuff in government with it and all that kind of stuff yeah yeah and when it starts to like really kind of impede on a whole bunch of other people's way of life then it's where it gets pretty iffy yeah the other thing that's like a huge red flag for me with it is um you know i've traveled all over the world at this point and i'm like uh, is it just a coincidence that everybody in Israel is Jewish? Most people in America are Christians. Most yeah, people yeah. <laughs> in China and India are Muslims. It's like, seems like just a product of your environment at that point. Yeah. You just like 100%. wake up being born as a baby in a country that has a different, like, you know, some religion mm. and end up subscribing to it basically. Cause it's what's in front of you and you. <laughs> yeah. I mean, it's, uh, <laughs> it's like a larger version of what we were talking about with music priming, you know, like the people who are, the most into like nineties ska punk were people who were between the age of 12 and 20 mm -hmm. in the nineties. You know what I mean? Like yeah. <laughs> it was just like, that was what was in front of them. That was what was new and, and in their peer group. And yeah, that's, it's always like this exact same with like parents and stuff, right. Who don't understand electronic music. They're always like, Oh man, this just sounds like fucking bleeps and bloops and <laughs> random noises. And back in my day, we had real guitars and it's just like, yeah, I feel like if back like in your day you had electronic music, you probably would have been into that. And then I see myself sometimes like getting older and like new music that comes out. Sometimes I'm like, Oh, it's so distorted and disgusting. <laughs> <laughs> like I don't get it. It's like too bright and too distorted and too heavy. Like, you know, I'm just like, God damn, like when are you kids going to bloody? <laughs> yeah. I catch myself occasionally in moments like that, but I think I'm doing a little better than uh, the average, like uh, still listens to what they liked in high school <laughs> type. But yeah. uh, I don't know. I, we're such like music lovers and nerds that I think we end up, we just appreciate so many different things for different reasons anyway. But right. um, but it, it stems from identity stuff, right? It's like, mm -hmm. you know, if, if I never could get over, like for a long time, I was like, I'm an IDM artist. I write IDM. I write technical glitchy stuff and that's it. Mm -hmm. And I would never make bangers because I was just like, no, it's not me. Like that's lame. That's for lame people. <laughs> or like, you know, that's for egotistical people who just want to be popular or that's for, you know, people who just want to, fucking tour the world and you know uh make a ton of money or like i had all these weird ideas about it and then i was like actually i don't know like some bangers are pretty cool and like i slowly merged over and started making them and now my career is way better for it i'm way happier for it um <laughs> but yeah i feel like there's a lot of like identity stuff where people like artists have issues kind of just sticking to their one thing yeah i think that i i keep on you know realizing that at deeper and deeper levels as as time goes on because um it's kind of ties into what we we're talking about fulfillment and whatnot too. But the thing that I realized, especially about doing YouTube was that, you know, I'm, I get to enjoy my life to the most, I think in, in the, the configuration I've decided to pursue. And, you know, the, the only thing I had to let go of was like, what other people think of me and like the traditional ideas of what a musician should look like. Like I gave up on, totally. on performing live yep. a couple of years ago, just because I was like for the amount of time and energy that goes into it and the emotional and, and financial reward I get out of it. It's better for me to just be in my studio way more of the time. And I made that call and it's kind of weird because I get invited, like people sometimes want me to come out somewhere and perform. And I'm like, Oh, I, I just don't. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. And, uh, 
Yeah, so your, just um, things like that. that what, what would your live show look like these days if you if you were going to do one? I think that the trouble for me now is that I would want to do something that would just take so many resources. Because I used to, when I performed, it, it went through so many iterations. Like I would do live looping with found objects. I would, you know, get up there with just an acoustic guitar. I used to be in this eight piece folk rock band. So I was just like kind of all over the place, but it always felt unsatisfying because it never felt like it represented what I'm all about. So I think if I were to do something, it would have to be a show that, um, covered a lot of territory. Like I think it would, you know, it'd be a lot of different genres. There would be a lot of interactive elements to it. I think it would be great to have visual elements to it. Just like, so for instance, I used to do this live looping thing where I would, um, take objects from the audience. Like I could, it would be easier to pull off at like smaller shows, but they could leave stuff at the front of the stage and I might sample it into a song. Or there was a track I did at every show on that tour where it was like, I, uh, just had a balloon and all the sounds came from a balloon. But like the better version of that would be if there was like a camera on it and it could kind of loop with me, you know, like I would be creating video content mm -hmm. as well as yeah, audio yeah, yeah. content that would be projected, all that kind of stuff. So that seems I, like it would be like very in line with the YouTube thing too. It seems like, mm -hmm. cause it was, it's kind of seems like, yeah, that, that would be what I would expect from an Andrew Huang show, I think. Yeah, and I think that to be able to rehearse that and to technologically pull it off and it not to mention be worse, like promoting like, yeah. and everything, yeah, just I would rather be, be writing new stuff. So That makes sense. That was a call I made. And like, yeah, traveling around with like a modular rig too, <laughs> that's always risky business. Yeah, I guess, yeah, I also just feel like all my musical horizons keep on expanding and expanding. So like a show would never be able to fully encompass that. Not that an album or a video ever does, but uh, it feels more like I can keep on exploring if I'm at home, as opposed to if I'm doing a show, ideally it would be really good. So it would be well rehearsed. So there wouldn't be a lot of room to like improvise stuff or throw new things in all the time. Well, I always think um, <clears throat> with media, the more live you go with it, the bigger a hit you take to the quality of it. So for mm -hmm. instance, um, this can be seen in electronic music too. If you just uh, play electronic music, like in the way that I do, which is just, I produce my own, I produce my tracks and then I just play them, right? And then I play them in sequence, in a certain sequence that I think makes an hour of music flow continu contiguously to sound like, it, you know, it creates a vibe and, and it has like a certain stylistic overview to it mm -hmm. and all sorts of stuff. Um, and the sound quality is really high. Uh, when I used to do live or electronic music, so I would like spend hours producing this stuff. Then I'd try and pull it all apart into stems and put it on controllers and yeah. do all sorts of, have a live drummer and all sorts of stuff to make it more live. So uh, the attribute of the set would be to give it more performance value, mm -hmm. uh, but the sound quality dropped. Mm. So currently I'm like in a position where the performance factor is not as high, but the sound quality is much higher. And I think there's like a balance there. And it's probably the same with YouTube, right? It's like if you're doing like a YouTube video where you're making all the sounds with a balloon, you could produce that at a, an extremely high quality mm -hmm. to where somebody can watch it back in a, you know, six to 10 minute video that's like really punchy, you know, has a lot of like production value to it and stuff like that versus um, trying to do that live, which yeah, could go wrong a million different ways. And uh, also maybe wouldn't sound quite as, you know, good because you haven't cleaned up the audio and yeah, <laughs> no, I think that's, that's definitely the case. Um, how do you feel about like the, the current iteration of your live show? I'm Is completely like comfortable with it yeah. because like I said, I've been, um, 
working hard over the last year to do basically what you're doing now as well, which is just to try and gear my life towards shit that I want to do. And what I realized was I don't really want to spend three months before I go on tour building a live set. Yeah. I'd prefer to spend those three months writing new songs to play in the set. And I mean, realistically, what do I want to do to the songs live anyway? And then I realized that it's just kind of destroying them because I like lament over like milliseconds worth of sound design in my mm-hmm. music and to then go live and just fucking pull it all apart and fuck it up that's it seems so stupid to me so i was like why would i why would i do that so i i just came to this conclusion of like it's more in line with what i want to do uh people seem to not give a shit either way there was the same amount of people come actually more people come to my shows now than were coming to my shows mm. when i was doing the live stuff i mean i think it would have grown at the same rate no matter what i did and I just get a lot more music written these days, which is what I want to do. Um, so I generally feel more engaged about life in general. So I actually don't care what people think, but they seem to be enjoying it, which is good. Yeah. But yeah, so so my current iteration of my set, <clears throat> although I don't think it's very live, I don't think DJing in general is that live in comparison to instrumental live shows or whatever. But yeah, I'm, I'm completely comfortable with it. it. It's more in line with like what I want to be doing. Yeah, that's great. And I mean, do you feel like... Um you wanted to or needed to change anything out of it out of necessity for like how hard it is to be on the road or thinking about growing or was it just really about sound quality no it was it was to do with how i felt about like my whole life so um as i when i was doing the live shows uh say i would have a tour coming up so for right now i have a tour coming up in um uh, september and october with mersive ill gates and uh, a couple other people kill smith i think and um if i was doing a live show at, at that time i would have to be preparing stuff for it now i wouldn't be writing music from now through until the end of october yeah yeah because i would just be thinking about how to build this live s- stuff you know like how am i going to perform all of my music live what tracks do i want to play i have to stem everything like it would just be a giant exercise <laughs> in basically rendering whereas now my whole focus up until uh when i start in mid september is just writing new music i'm like all right i got a bunch of shows to play i want some new heavy stuff to play so i'm gonna write a bunch of heavy stuff um do i want to make you know i probably get a good chunk of my album done before then uh and then at the end of the year instead of just having to show for it 10 live shows i'll have to show for it an album which to me seems way more powerful and like more things you can play out in those shows yeah exactly That was the other thing is when I was building the live shows, I couldn't really figure out a way to do it without doing it in arrangement view because I had so much program change stuff going on. So every night I was playing the same show. Um, Whereas now it's like, I'll be on the plane. I'll be working on music in my headphones. I will, uh, you know, do an edit of a, a tune and I'll like, you know, clean up another one and then I'll like, you know, move some shit around. And then by the time I get to the next show, my set is like 10% different than it was mm. the night before, you know? And if I keep making it 10% different every show, it's like every 10 shows, it's kind of a new show. Yeah. So um, I kind of think it's in some ways more engaging to see me now than it was then. Because if you, if you came to like two shows in the span of six months, yeah. three years ago yeah, they would have been basically, basically the same show yeah. yeah whereas um because there was a lot of visual content that was like cued oh, yeah, to the yeah, show yeah. as well yeah. so it's like so much work to change anything um whereas now i can just change stuff uh like on the flight on the way to the show <laughs> and yeah i like that i like how much more like modular it is now and how much more bendable it is uh, flexible yeah, I still don't think I would take even the amount of time it takes to do that and do a, a live set that way but um, yeah, no, I think that 
that sounds awesome and it works great for you. I'm like, uh, so consumed with just like always making a new thing. I don't know what it is, <laughs> Yeah. but like every time I perform live, I, I, I kind of feel like, ah, oh, I've already, I already made this. <laughs> right. <laughs> this is a weird, uh, but yeah, but I mean, um, DJing, I guess is just, yeah, you already made it, but you didn't make it in that moment and you didn't mix it in that moment yet. Mm -hmm. and like, and it's all about like stuff that you made, like presenting it to people in like the coolest way possible, you know? Yeah. So yeah. you could be playing one song and then all of a sudden it like drops into this thing that you might've made like four years ago, but it's just like the perfect song for that time in that moment. And it mixes really nicely and everything. And like, I don't know, sometimes you just get these moments in DJing where it's like, ah, oh, like everything's working perfectly. Yeah. yeah and other yeah. times like, you know, the mix is garbage and the vibes just not coming together. Right. And like, <laughs> I don't know. It's, it's a fun challenge. It's kind of like, yeah, I don't know. I like DJing. It's fun. Yeah. I mean, it's for sure a very real thing and it's why live music is so popular and that, you know, people are getting an experience that they can't otherwise get. And I think that's also why, um, it is totally great to, you know, whether you're doing a DJ set or whether you have this huge band and everyone's playing live, like it's so much more about creating a moment for people than it is about any execution of musicianship or like what, whatever happens to be happening. Like they're coming to have a good time. Yeah. Well, that's the thing is I think when people come to an electronic music show, um, they don't really care what's happening on stage. They're more or less going there because their friends are going there and they're coming to like hear really well-produced music because they're into that and yeah, to have a good experience with their friends. They're not necessarily coming to like watch the musicianship on stage mm -hmm. for like a jazz band, you know? Um, and that's why they're two very different kinds of setups. Like when you go to a club and watch a jazz band, it's like four guys in a corner or three guys in a corner. Everyone's kind of sitting and looking at the band and drinking martinis <laughs> and like enjoying <laughs> the musicianship of this band, right? But an electronic show it's like a giant led wall you can barely see the guy on stage he's just a silhouette <laughs> the sound system is like and the big led wall are like the main focus and you're just there hanging out with your friends looking at this fucking monstrosity of lights <laughs> <laughs> and like the the visual aspect of it is not a really a guy or a band it's it's a giant wall of media <laughs> <laughs> it's yeah it's insane like when like dead mouse's new cube is fucking crazy man uh it's like the size of your house of led walls in a cube like it's crazy <laughs> bass nectar at camp bisco like he brought a ton more led walls for his set than anybody else's set to the point where it's just like like a football field sized led wall that he was like in the middle of it's pretty yeah pretty impressive yeah, it's, a, it's expensive. I think <laughs> once you get to that level, you need to be like spending quite a lot of money. Yeah, yeah. I guess your overhead is way up if you're doing that kind of stuff. Well, yeah, LED walls to rent them, it's not cheap. Um, I think to rent like, you know, probably one the size of that panel on your back wall. Um, I mean, I don't know. I've never rented one, but I can't imagine. <laughs> so that was another thing that I kind of got over with my live shows is um, I was traveling with a crew of five. So it was like me... Uh, three visual guys and then like a, a support act oh wait sorry and then there was a drummer so six guys yeah <laughs> so um and we were traveling in a sprinter van and we had all the gear in the sprinter van too so it was like cramped and we traveled like that for about three months oh my gosh and um yeah every show uh, the worst one was in canada we played a show in calgary we set our whole show up um in calgary finished it and then loaded out at uh, 3 a.m. I think we got all of our shit back in our van by 4 a.m. And then we had to be in Winnipeg for a sound check at 5 
p.m. Oh my god! So it was like literally no we had sleep. no, we had to leave the Calgary show and go straight to Winnipeg, and it was like <laughs> a twelve-hour drive. Yeah. So it's like we left at four a.m. in Calgary, and with stops and stuff, got to Winnipeg at about five for loading. Oh, that's terrible. And then had to reset up this huge show again and uh, and get this show happening again. <laughs> yeah, Canada's the worst for touring, unfortunately. It's just yeah. how far apart everything is. Yeah, it was like some nights like that on the tour where I was just like, fuck that. Like, I mean, I'm so much happier now, like going to bed after I finish the show without mm -hmm. having to pack down anything except a laptop. Yeah. Going to the hotel, falling asleep, waking up the next day at midday, getting on a flight at like two. And then I would have been in Winnipeg at like three. You yeah, know, it's yeah, like, yeah. <laughs> I would have gotten a night's sleep plus gotten there earlier than I did. <laughs> it's like insane, man. And then once I got to Winnipeg at three, go back to sleep until like midnight because you don't have to play until like one in the morning. Yeah. The things that we kind of like trap ourselves in sometimes without realizing it. Yeah, exactly. And then like it's when, when I was going through all of that, I was kind of like, oh man, this is like not at all what I want to be doing for my life. <laughs> like this is a terrible way to spend a life. I think that's, you know, the, the way that I relate to that is with some of the YouTube stuff that I've done where I'm like, oh, well, some, some days it feels like if I'm going to turn on the camera now, I'm giving away three days of my life. And like yeah. when I, now that I'm off the schedule, I make that call a much more uh, judiciously, I guess maybe is the word I'm like, you know, if I have a, an idea that I think could be good as a video, I feel like I need to be way more sure of it. Cause now I know the true cost of it when it used to be. Like the only thing I was focusing on, that was a different story. Or when it used to be, you know, if I was just less experienced and I was like, oh yeah, I think this would be cool and I'll start to make it. And I'm like a hard worker and I'm committed. So like, I'll see it through. And now I just know that I'm not going to be able to just like toss off something real quick. It's going to yeah. be like, okay, well I've decided now that this is a project. And so, um, yeah, you really got to get smarter about like, you start to see the the patterns and, and what's going to unfold if you choose to make a particular totally, yeah. <laughs> creative or business decision. Yeah, you start, yeah, exactly. You start to abstract the, um, the repercussions of choosing to take on work. Like it's the exact same with touring. It's it, when an offer comes in for a show, depending on the kind of show, I'll like ask some questions about it and then I'll be able to be like, is this worth that much money? <laughs> like, yeah, yeah. Cause I know like what it's going to, what I'm like. And I know like if I sign up for a big show, I know that I'm not going to like be doing, I, I know for a fact that if I, if I go, all right, I'm playing at Red Rocks, that's going to equal like a blackout of three weeks or so before that show in the studio for me, just grinding every day. So not that I would turn a Red Rocks show down. Like I would happily be like, yeah, that's worth it. Like, to take that blackout of three weeks before to just like prepare new music and to prepare my set. Um, and at that point, I think at a show of that scale, when it's that big, I wouldn't really chance anything to like the moment. Yeah, yeah. I'd kind of like prepare most of the show because um, you don't want to look like a dumbass in front of that many people. That's like the worst feeling is like <laughs> when you go like, ah, oh, whatever, it'll be fine. Then you get there live and you're like, fuck, I should have prepared more stuff. Like, yeah. <laughs> but yeah, man. Um, cool. What did you want to call it there? I feel like it was good. Yeah, yeah. I think we talked about a lot of awesome Yeah, stuff. so for me, podcasts are like a thing where I can, um, I just put them on when I get on a plane or whatever. And then I just hit play and like kind of half fall asleep whilst listening to a conversation. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And it just, I don't know, makes me feel like I'm watching something almost. Cause like when I'm listening to it, it's kind of like forming images in my head. Yeah. It's kind of like reading, you know, but just. I feel, I think of it as like kind of hanging out with someone. I don't know. That I like, too, yeah. I, I guess I don't listen to too many podcasts where it's just one person, but it's so nice to kind of be privy to an interesting conversation. Yeah. Have a good Agreed. host and guest or two co-hosts or something. Yeah. It's, it's really nice. Well, thanks for having me on. Cool. Yeah. yeah. Appreciate it, man. All right. Cheers. Great chat. Hey.
Thank you for listening to the Mr. Bill podcast. Thank you for listening to the Mr. Bill podcast. Thank you for listening to the Mr. Bill podcast. Thank you for listening to the Mr. Bill podcast. Thank you for listening to the Mr. Bill podcast. Thank you for listening to the Mr. Bill podcast.